So he was someone who represented this cultural populism, but who understood how cultural populism, in fact, undergirds the Constitution itself, the constitutional morality of the Federalist Papers, and that populism and, you know, sort of wise government at the elite level work together to create uh, a successful America. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny and Marlo. Today's guest is ISI's own Dan McCarthy, who is our first return guest on the podcast. Daniel McCarthy is Vice President for the Collegiate Network at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and editor of ISI's journal Modern Age. He recently wrote the foreword for the newest reprinting of Wilmar Kendall's The Conservative Affirmation, which we'll be discussing today. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks. Delighted to join you. Before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Dan, we want to invite you back on to talk about the introduction you wrote for Wilmer Kendall's book, The Conservative Affirmation. So bring us up to speed about what your first interaction with Kendall's work was, what drew you to him, and what brought you to writing the introduction for this book. Yeah, Wilmer Kendall was one of the founding fathers of the post-war conservative movement. He was an early senior editor at National Review. And in fact, he was kind of William F. Buckley Jr.'s mentor figure at Yale University. So Kendall was a professor of politics at Yale and was a rather unpopular figure because he was a supporter of conservatism, which even back in the 1950s was a controversial view to hold on campus, you know, especially in a place like Yale. So Kendall was someone who was very influential on the formation of the conservative movement. He very much uh, shaped uh, Bill Buckley's thinking, especially early on. But then he became kind of a lost figure in the history of American conservatism. And so as I learned about conservatism over the course of, you know, many things I was reading, you know, people like James Burnham or George H. Nash's book on the conservative intellectual movement since 1945, I would see these references to Wilmore Kendall and think to myself, well, I wonder who this guy is. So I... um eventually read a copy of Conservative Affirmation, which was first published in 1963. And the first time I read it, I actually didn't get all that much out of it. And then a few years later, there was a book being put together called The Dilemmas of American Conservatism. And this was a book that consisted of a number of chapters by different authors talking about different conservative thinkers and the challenges and dilemmas that they confronted in their conservative theories. And they needed a chapter in this book on Wilmore Kendall. And uh, my friend Gerald Russello, who uh, unfortunately has passed away quite recently, but Gerald Russello was the editor of the University Bookman, and he told me they were looking for someone to write a chapter on Wilmore Kendall for this book. And I said, well, you know what, I'd be happy to take that on. So I did a crash course in reading basically everything that Wilmore Kendall had ever written. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, I came to know his work very well. I I wrote this chapter for the book Dilemmas of American Conservatism. And then, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years later, when uh, Regnery was looking to reissue the conservative affirmation, they reached out to me and they said they'd like me to write the foreword. Dan, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relevance of Kendall for a particular political and cultural moment today, you know, with the rise of, of populism and, and nationalism in American politics. Many have said that populism is the antithesis of conservatism. But I think in Kendall, we find, you know, a more sophisticated defense of popular will operating through the the deliberative processes of the American Constitution. So what is it about Kendall's thought in particular that speaks to us right now in 2022? Conservatives know that, you know, sort of pure direct democracy of the sort that characterized classical Athens is often a bad idea. And in fact, it didn't work out so well for the Athenians. 
and would never be practical here in the United States. Conservatives also look at the way in which progressives talk about democracy, where they often don't even mean democracy itself. What they really mean is a kind of ideology that they're simply going to label as democracy. Conservatives look at all of this and they say, well, we conservatives should not be fans of democracy. We should be very skeptical of it. We should support aristocracy or perhaps monarchy. Or, uh, you know, sometimes they will say, well, no, we're a republic, not a democracy. The great thing about Wilmore Kendall's book, The Conservative Affirmation, is that it takes on these definitional questions as to what democracy is, what it means in the American context, what it means to be a republic, what kind of aristocracy of talent we might have in the United States, and even, you know, to some degree, to what extent an office like the presidency might be monarchical. So Wilmore Kendall is combining both a classic understanding of political philosophy with an application to the American Constitution itself. And he's able to show that, in fact, even though our Constitution is based upon a popular foundation, that popular self-government really is, you know, the pure practice of our, our government. We don't have, you know, a hereditary class. We don't have, you know, sort of forces or institutions other than the people represented within our government. Nevertheless, the way in which the people are represented is modulated and is changed in different kinds of institutions. So the presidency uh, with the Electoral College, the uh, Senate, which originally, of course, uh, had members that were appointed by state governments, the House of Representatives, where you do have, you know, a popular vote for uh, congressmen. All of these things fit together in a way that they're all based ultimately on popular choice, but they have a, a filtering effect. And they also impose a kind of constitutional morality. And that's a, a phrase that Kendall coins, which helps to bring out the best of the people. So basically, you, you have the people's feelings and sentiments. You have basically their good instincts uh, in their own local communities. And then you're able to, you know, sort of select from them the best possible representatives who then come together and are able to guide the uh, nation as a whole in a wise way. Kendall makes a very persuasive case that this is fundamentally a kind of populism. And even though he doesn't use the word populism, it's very clear that this kind of popularly directed self-government corresponds exactly to what we think of as populism today. Kendall himself was born in small town Oklahoma. And even as he became a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and even as he became a, uh, you know, a professor at Yale University, he always had that Oklahoman instinct with him. And he liked to say that, uh, you know, the American people are conservative, not just in their heads or not just in their hearts, but in their very hips and the very way that they walk. So he was someone who represented this cultural populism, but who understood how cultural populism, in fact, undergirds the Constitution itself, the constitutional morality of the Federalist Papers, and that populism and, you know, sort of wise government at the elite level work together to create uh, a successful America. And when you don't have that, when you have a corrupted elite, which tries to, you know, sort of reduce the public to merely being a undifferentiated, atomized mass of people who are going to uh, be subject to kind of national level uh, rhetoric, then you have a breakdown in the American system and an opening for really the kind of ideological government that we've seen in America over the course of the last 60 years. The Conservative Affirmation was first published in 1963. One of the great things about this book is that Wilmore Kendall was way ahead of the curve. He understood the revolution that was already happening in the country at that time, and which now, of course, uh, we have to live with the effects of. Could you talk a little bit more about the waters that he was swimming in? You mentioned just now with the context of his writings, if you could kind of go into that in more detail, since I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with, you know, William F. Buckley, for example, especially with the ISI connection. What was what was Kendall up against at the time of his life and thought? Yeah, I'll go all the way back to the beginning. So uh, as Kendall was a boy growing up in Oklahoma, 
you know, there's a sense in which Oklahoma in the early part of the 20th century, he's born in 1909, is still, if not exactly the Wild West, it is, uh, you know, a, a kind of rather rough and tumble place that has not fully developed, you know, what it's going to be in the long run. So in that sense, he was someone who kind of lived, I don't want to say in the state of nature exactly, but certainly in a, uh, a place that had to discover virtue for the first time in terms of setting up its communities and figuring out what kind of regulations were going to make them successful. Kendall, at an early age, also becomes interested, as a number of, you know, young intellectuals of the early 20th century did, in socialism and in Marxism. And, you know, he basically translates what begins as a sort of Oklahoma American populism of the sort represented by a kind of uh, someone like T.P. Gore, for example, the uh, senator from Oklahoma early on in the 20th century. And Kendall starts to mix that with certain socialist ideas for a time. Kendall even goes and works at one point as a reporter in Spain shortly before the Spanish Civil War. So he's not there during the Spanish Civil War itself, but he's there as clearly Spain is heading towards this major conflict between left and right. And uh, as a result of that, when, when Kendall returns to the United States, he realizes that many of the Spanish leftists that he knew, in fact, wind up getting liquidated by Stalinists in Spain, and that there's, you know, uh, more to fear even from the communists than there were from, you know, reactionary forces within Spain. So that starts to change his attitude towards socialism and towards communism. The other thing is that then he, during the course of World War II, goes to work for American intelligence, working in particular in South America, and because he's an expert in Spanish. And what he sees is that a number of academics that he knew of in America who were socialist fellow travelers, or in fact outright communists, are actually also working for the United States and are basically subverting America's efforts in Latin America and are promulgating you know, communist and socialist ideas rather than ideas in support of the American Constitution. So Kendall you know, becomes quite a strong cold warrior immediately after World War II. He's someone who has personally seen communist infiltration. He's personally seen the way communists act in places like Spain. And uh, so he's very supportive of Senator Joseph McCarthy, who is trying to uncover communist, uh, you know, infiltration within the American government. Joseph McCarthy, of course, is kind of reckless. You know, he's personally troubled by alcoholism and whatnot. So Kendall is often, you know, seen as the most prominent academic defender of Joseph McCarthy. But in fact, what Kendall was arguing was not just in defense of Joe McCarthy and not in defense of particular claims that McCarthy was making, but rather in defense of the American Republic's right to identify subversion and to exclude it, basically, from uh, our institutions of power and, in fact, from our public square. So Kendall was a big uh, defender of what he called public orthodoxy, which is basically, you know, the foundational commitments that any kind of a, 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 a you know, city state or a nation state, any kind of polity whatsoever, has to have a certain set of beliefs that it affirms if it's going to continue to exist. And if it allows anyone to, you know, destroy those beliefs, then the uh, polity itself will collapse as well. So this is what he saw as being at stake uh, during the McCarthy era. One of the great things about Wilmore Kendall is that despite his own prominence, you know, as a professor at Yale, as an early contributor to National Review, he was always willing to learn from other conservatives. And in fact, he considered uh, Leo Strauss to be in some ways his greatest teacher, even though they didn't have a direct student-pupil relationship. Kendall learned so much from reading Strauss's books that he came to see Strauss as kind of a major, you know, teaching influence upon himself. And in fact, the conservative affirmation was originally going to be called, What is Conservatism?, and that title was based upon a title of a Leo Strauss book, What is Political Philosophy? So you can see, even in a book like The Conservative Affirmation, the direct influence that Leo Strauss is having on Kendall. 
At the same time, Kendall is not a Orthodox Straussian. He is also someone who's learning from Eric Vogelin, one of the other great, you know, sort of middle European emigre intellectuals who comes to the United States in the early part, of, uh, in the middle of the 20th century as a refugee from Nazi Germany, and who begins to teach, you know, conservatives and to, to uh, have a major influence on the post-war conservative movement. So Vogelin and uh, Strauss are both major influences on Wilmore Kendall. Kendall's father was actually a blind Methodist preacher and a rather, you know, a very imposing figure, a very interesting figure, someone whose theology was actually more or less progressive. Uh, and in fact, Wilmore Kendall was quite critical of his father's own religious views. Kendall becomes a very staunch Catholic. And as part of his sort of ongoing experience with Spain, he actually moves to Spain for several months during um, uh, Francisco Franco's uh, rule in Spain. And Wilmore Kendall is very close friends, not only with Bill Buckley, but also with Brent Bozell, who is Buckley's brother-in-law. And Brent Bozell, of course, becomes basically an early iteration of what we would now be called an integralist. Bozell was, you know, a defender of the idea of a Catholic state. And uh, Bozell lived in Spain, trying to urge Spain to, you know, return to its Catholic roots as much as possible. And Kendall, while not going quite as far as Brent Bozell, was someone who certainly understood where that position was coming from. And Kendall worked very hard to bring his own Catholicism into communication with his understanding of the American political tradition. Dan, I think there's still some more that we should unpack here in terms of his relationship with other conservative thinkers like Russell Kirk or Harry Jaffa and the Lincoln-Douglas debates and all that. But before we get there, you had mentioned the, the phrase public orthodoxy and what that meant to Kendall. And I'm curious what Kendall would have to say, you know, at, at his time, uh, he was trying to prevent the subversion of public orthodoxy in the form of communist infiltration. What advice would he have if the public orthodoxy that undergirded this American system of, you know, the people deliberating under God, what happens if that were to be lost? If public orthodoxy is lost. What advice would he have about how what it takes to restore public orthodoxy. He has a great chapter in the conservative affirmation on uh, the so-called open society. And, uh, you know, at the time in the you know middle of the 20th century, liberals and progressives often claim to be in defense of free speech and open society, a society in which any kind of orthodoxy could be questioned. And one of the great things about this chapter is that even though Kendall wrote it in the 1950s or early 1960s, he anticipated exactly where things would wind up going, which is once the progressives succeeded in demolishing the existing American orthodoxy, what they would do is simply create one of their own. And so he was warning even back then about the fact that these claims, sort of total free speech, would in fact uh, wind up being hypocritical and there would be a double standard implied applied, which would have the left taking power and then silencing conservatives. Kendall had tremendous faith in the American people, and that's why I think that, in fact, his work is still very relevant to populists today, that populists are told, well, you're just ignorant, you just, you know, have this sort of angry emotional reaction to what you're calling elites, and you don't have any kind of real theory or real substance to your politics. And Kendall shows that, in fact, no, that populism is a deep part of the American tradition. And I think Kendall would be very optimistic about recovering that right now. And uh, as we're recording this podcast, we're a few days away from an election. You know, I think Wilmore Kendall would look at some of the elections, you know, perhaps 2016 and others and would say, no, this is actually a great example of the American people reclaiming uh, their country and basically saying they see the corruption that has been introduced by an ideological elite, which, first of all, destroyed the old public orthodoxy and has now started to create a new one. 
and the public is willing to resist that. What I think Kendall would be worried about is whether we have so vitiated and damaged our local institutions that that level of our republic can't be rebuilt. So Kendall was always very critical of the idea of a presidentially led political movement. He preferred a congressionally led American political movement. That's because he thought that local self-government was really the heart of the American tradition and the heart of American virtue and values as well. And the fact that, you know, the local community has now been so badly damaged, not only by the centralization of power in Washington, D.C., but also by the scope of the global economy, which has rendered local economies a lot a lot less relevant than they used to be. I think Kendall would be very worried right now and would say perhaps recovering, you know, the sort of Madisonian view of how local communities would be virtuous and would filter up to wise government at the national level, that if this can't be recovered, then what you're going to be left with is a choice between two different Caesars. And basically, Kendall was always, you know, aware that the American presidency had the capacity to represent a certain kind of Caesarism within the American Constitution. Kendall was very critical of that, as was his friend James Burnham. But I think both of them were realistic enough that they would say, you know, you could reach a point where you wind up perhaps having to uh, rely upon a very presidential, very powerful kind of executive in order to, at the very least, stave off the worst excesses of the ideological left. Perhaps there would even be a way to start to restore the local communities if you had a, you know, a presidential leader who was able to use power in the right way. But Kendall would certainly be very concerned about whether that would actually work out in practice or whether, in fact, uh, the nature of presidentialism, which is, again, a, a sort of... Um, you know, presidentialism tends to bypass the local. It tends to have, you know, one leader speaking to an undifferentiated, atomized mass of followers. This fundamental setup might be something that just makes it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to recover real localism and self-government. That's, I think, the dilemma that Kendall would be confronting today. I want to speak a little bit about a matter that um, you have expertise in, Dan, which is, you know, foreign affairs and specifically foreign policy. Although it seems like Kendall's views largely were um, kind of focused on the rather the, the American system of governance, what do you think he would say, or rather, what were his views on America's role in in the world, generally speaking? Maybe perhaps at the time you mentioned he was a cold warrior, but especially today, where world economies are so integrated with the American. Yeah, Kendall, as I said, worked for American intelligence in Latin America during World War II. Then after World War II, he becomes an advisor to first the, you know, the OSS as it's transitioning to becoming the CIA. There's a funny story that his friend uh, Jeffrey Hart, one of the other senior editors at National Review, tells about, you know, one time when Hart visited Wilmore Kendall, I think in Paris, there was a radio news broadcast talking about an attempted assassination in Indonesia. And Wilmore Kendall cracks a rather dark joke about, oh, I know that this must have been a CIA hit because everyone died except the target. So uh, Kendall, you know, despite being a cold warrior and having an intelligence background himself, he was also rather skeptical of the way that we conducted foreign policy and attempts at regime change. And Kendall actually had a pretty well-formed view. And this comes through in a recent biography of Kendall by a um, an author named Christopher Owen. Uh, the book is called Heaven Can Indeed Fall. It's a short biography of Kendall, and it points out that Kendall actually had a view of the Cold War and of how to fight it that emphasized information warfare and public diplomacy over subversion and regime change and, you know, sort of CIA uh, skullduggery. And uh, this is an area of Kendall's work that I think is, is not so well known, and I'd like to learn more about it myself. But Kendall basically believed that ideas are what shape polities. 
And therefore, America's most important role was to go out there and to shape the ideas of the rest of the world. And that did not mean going out there and trying to use force in order to shape things in our direction. I think Kendall would actually be, you know, uh, very skeptical right now of the way in which, you know, a kind of universalistic um, combination of, you know, rhetoric of liberal democracy with attempts at, you know, sort of regime change and nation building as we've seen in our foreign policy over the last 20 years, I think Kendall would be very opposed to all of that. And that instead he would be saying, first of all, America should get its own house in order, should again show that, you know, self-government can work in our own country, according to our own constitution. And then we'd be able to actually teach the rest of the world more about how things work successfully here. And if we can't do that, and if in fact, you know, we are losing self-government even here at home, then of course, you know, we have no chance of exporting that to Afghanistan or any other place where it would have very slim chances indeed. Dan, I'm wondering uh, if we can go back to back to the conservative intellectual movement. Can you talk a bit about how uh, Kendall stacks up against Russell Kirk and his book, The Conservative Mind, against Frank Meyer and his fusionist project, as well as some of those tensions that developed with the disciples of Strauss later on? So, you know, uh, back when I was editor of the American Conservative magazine, one of the people I got to publish was Reed Buckley. And Reed Buckley was the younger brother of William F. Buckley Jr. And so Reed and I corresponded a little bit about Wilmore Kendall. And in fact, you know, in some of the things that Reed wrote for the American Conservative, he referred to Kendall. Reed also attended Yale and was also a student of Kendall's. And one of the things that uh, Reed Buckley said about Kendall, which I think is very poignant, is that Wilmore Kendall was a man who never lost an argument but could never keep a friend. And in fact, you know, over the course of his rather tempestuous life, Kendall wound up breaking relations with, you know, almost everyone, including Bill Buckley. And uh, he was always a little bit of a spiky character when it came to his relationships with other, you know, conservatives in the post-war movement, including people like Russell Kirk and Frank Meyer. So first of all, Wilmore Kendall did not agree with libertarians who tended to reduce politics to economics. Kendall, in fact, was not a fan of Barry Goldwater. He really, you know, thought that libertarianism was primarily misguided. He didn't like uh, Frank Meyer's view of fusionism. He th thought Meyer was trying to, too hard to create a kind of conservative dogma that was stitched together out of, you know, kind of a Frankenstein's mixture of different elements. Kendall thought, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You should just recognize that what American conservatism is fundamentally about is, first of all, resisting the liberal revolution, and that was the term that Kendall used, and second, that it's about maintaining the constitutional morality of the Federalist and, you know, even beyond that, maintaining, you know, the sort of Western Christian and classical tradition of the need for a polity to be under the transcendent authority of God. So that was Kendall's view of conservatism. And he thought that, you know, what uh, Frank Meyer was doing was really not, you know, very helpful. It was just a distraction. And then uh, Kendall, you know, is often somewhat sharp in his criticisms, or at least his implied criticisms of Russell Kirk. I think he found Kirk or at least the influence that Kirk had on the conservative movement, to be far too anglicizing and to tend to, you know, sort of discount the American tradition in favor of the British tradition or in favor of a, you know, sort of European view of what conservatism should be. Kendall was very strong in defending the idea that conservatism had real and deep American roots and that we did not have to, you know, consider ourselves to be just an offshoot of the English in order to have a conservatism of our own that we could value. Matt Continendi actually wrote a review of the book in a recent piece for National Review, and especially with the elections coming up in a few days now, he raises the question of how can a party that in 2020, in the 2020 election that received 48% of the National House vote and 47% of the presidential vote call itself majoritarian. So I'm interested in what your thoughts are or how you would respond to that. 
Kendall's views on majoritarianism changed. So he actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, John Locke and the doctrine of majority rule. And at the time, Kendall would have considered himself, and in fact, in fact, I think he explicitly called himself a majority rule Democrat. But he matured, basically. And by the time he was writing uh, great works like the Conservative Affirmation, he had a much deeper appreciation of proper functionings of the Madisonian Constitution. So I don't think Kendall would be dismayed at all in, you know, seeing that the mass plebiscitary form of democracy, which is, you know, you just take the 300, uh, you know, 330 million people in the United States and you say, OK, what does a majority of them support? Do they support, you know, uh, a candidate X or candidate Y? You see the Democrats right now that they, they even uh, will often point to House elections and they will say, ah, but, you know, these House majorities that Republicans have enjoyed on and off since 1995, they're not really legitimate because sometimes even in these House elections, more people actually cast their votes for Democrats and Republicans only have control of the House because of the way in which, you know, House districts are divided up. And that, in fact, if you had a vote of the entire 330 million people in the United States all at once, and they were all voting for, you know, control of Congress at the same time, then Congress would be consistently controlled by Democrats, just as the White House would be consistently controlled by Democrats. And, uh, you know, they assume the same thing would be basically true of the Senate as well. And we've seen all these attacks on the filibuster, on the, you know, sort of uh, principle of equal representation in the Senate for every state. Democrats and progressives don't like any of that today. Wilmore Kendall, on the other hand, was a great defender of all these institutions. And he, he, in fact, I mean, one reason the book, um, The Conservative Affirmation is so important is that it shows that this sort of non-majoritarianism, at least at the, you know, sort of plebiscitary national level, in fact, is a real form of democracy and is a real form of majoritarianism at the local level. And that's important because at the local level, you actually have more interactions with your fellow citizens. And, you know, at least if, if congressional districts are small enough and if local government is small enough, you have more interaction with your own leaders as well. And that creates, you know, a much better system, a much more humane system than when you have this kind of universal electorate of 330 million people where nobody knows one another. We're all strangers to one another. And uh, Kendall warned that, you know, when you have such a broad atomized electorate, People can only communicate in the vaguest and most abstract terms. And I think a perfect illustration of this is Barack Obama, who, of course, wins a majority in 2008 by campaigning on the most vague and banal slogan possible, hope and change. Well, what does that actually mean? Are people actually happy when they get the policies that Barack Obama intended by hope and change? The answer is no. People actually are quite, you know, alarmed to see that uh, hope and change means attacking, for example, religious liberty. It means forcing nuns and others to pay for, you know, sort of a contraception against their own conscience and practices. That uh, hope and change was actually, you know, a number of very partisan policies, which would not have been able to win a majority if Barack Obama had had to present them honestly. But instead, if Obama is able to talk in vague and general terms about hope and change, People are going to be fooled by that. That's one of the reasons why Kendall preferred the idea of congressional majorities that are based upon local majorities, as opposed to a national plebiscitary uh, kind of universal electorate, which, because it was only responding to the vaguest and most abstract uh, rhetorical pitches, would, would then be constantly fooled by clever rhetoricians like uh, Barack Obama. Dan, how did Kendall understand the function of an elite class or a leadership class working in American life. You know, there was, I think, an interview with Tucker Carlson a few weeks ago where someone asked him if he was a populist and he said, no, I'm not a populist. I'm an elitist. 
I'm, I just happen to think that our current elites are terrible. They're, you know, they're, they're poisoning the system. They need to be replaced with a new elite, a new leadership class. Obviously, you know, Kendall taught at Yale. So there were, you know, there was a, the, the people who he was interacting with, especially at Yale at that time, were probably very much from the, the legacy kind of wasp leadership class. So what, for, for someone like Kendall, did he view such a class as necessary? And, and if so, what, what should they look like? And how do you reform that class if it goes awry? That's absolutely right. There needs to be an elite, uh, but the, the elite needs to serve the people and needs to be connected to the people. And this, again, was something where Kendall would look at uh, the thought of James Madison and the precedent of our own founding fathers and would take inspiration and be informed by their way of doing things. So Kendall thought that, you know, ideally, first of all, you have local elites, right? So within a small local community, people will know by reputation who are the leading figures within that community. You know, who are the most articulate persons? Who are the persons who are most charitable? Who are the persons that have, you know, the most virtue, the best character? When you're dealing with a small enough community, you can actually know this, you know, individually for yourself or know it at least secondhand, right? So you may not know every single person within your community, within your small town, but chances are that the word of mouth is going to spread. Some people are going to have better reputations than others. And then you can look at those who have better reputations. And when it comes time to start electing people to Congress or electing people to local government, you can select those people who have better reputations and who are, you know, sort of either personally known to you or are known to people that you trust in your local community as being the most outstanding local leaders. Then you promote those local leaders up to the next level. And at the next level, whether it's in state government or in the House of Representatives, those leaders of different communities have to come together and they have to decide what are the, you know, sort of best ways to pursue the common good for the nation as a whole, instead of simply, you know, sort of breaking up into a number of squabbling factions or trying to pursue, you know, the interest of one particular faction, you know, sort of cobbling together a majority against everyone else. And that's why, you know, sort of pure majoritarianism is not the ideal, even in Congress. And in fact, a lot of what when Wilmore Kendall winds up saying is that in effect, uh, constitutional morality winds up uh, encouraging members of Congress and, you know, officials throughout the Constitution to try to create a consensus that goes beyond mere majoritarianism. And that really is responsive both to the needs of local communities, but also to the common good of the whole country, and is not trying to pursue some sort of partial good that is only that of a, you know, particularly influential, you know, small segment. And what's happened is that ideologues have been able to corrupt this process. They've been able to, you know, weaken localities. They've been able to, you know, strip localities of a lot of their economic independence and a lot of their political uh, powers. And instead, you know, we now have a mass media which says, well, the people you should know best are not, you know, the sort of most outstanding and virtuous uh, men and women within your own communities. The people you should know best are celebrities. They're people that, you know, uh, get television time, formerly radio time. Today, you know, maybe they're on TikTok. But this is something that the media has created for us. And at the same time, you've seen an intellectual elite that has been corrupted, which increasingly, you know, attacks the idea of local self-rule and instead promotes the idea that we must have these universal commitments that are not just universal commitments to, you know, sort of the general idea of the common good, but universal commitments to a very particular ideology like liberal democracy, which must be applied not only here in the United States, but in fact, all around the world. And when you, it's very interesting that when you hear these elite, you know, sort of university academics and others, journalists and others talk about democracy, they now mean by democracy, a, 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 an ideological program of their own, regardless of whether any actual human being wants to vote for it. 
And their whole idea is, well, we're going to control the educational apparatus and we're going to control the media apparatus. And at that point, we're either going to have people so deadened and so incapable of thinking for themselves that they're simply going to accept and approve whatever we give them. Or, you know, we're going to make sure that we exclude any alternatives and we only present them, you know, a choice between two varieties of the same kind of ideology, the same progressive liberal ideology. And uh, that's what's wound up happening. And I think Kendall, you know, diagnoses this problem very well in the conservative affirmation. And his book, you know, provides us with a lot of theoretical tools for fighting against this. And even where he fails to provide us with some of the tools we might need, he nonetheless shows us what the theoretical problem is. And that's going to help us develop those tools for ourselves today. Before we run out of time here, I, I want to rewind a little bit because I'm curious about the, you, you raised the point about Kendall being a Catholic convert and having to reconcile his views. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, Kendall, you know, oftentimes when we talk about what kind of country America is, there's a tendency influenced by some schools of, you know, disciples of Leo Strauss to reduce America to the Declaration of Independence, maybe the Declaration of Independence plus the Constitution. And of course, these documents are very important. Uh, you know, they're very significant and they're very, you know, there's a lot of truth in both of them. But when you reduce the country just to these documents, it's easy to say, well, if that's the case, then if the Declaration of Independence depends very heavily on John Locke, and if the Constitution depends on, you know, Montesquieu and perhaps David Hume and others, then maybe America is just an Enlightenment country. And if the Enlightenment has, uh, you know, certain deficiencies, especially when it comes to the recognition of, you know, God and the recognition of the transcendent, then America had a very bad founding and would ultimately go off the rails. And uh, Wilmore Kendall, you know, he would not totally accept that analysis, even of the uh, Declaration and the Constitution. But importantly, uh, Wilmore Kendall, in his, his other great work, uh, The Basic Symbols of the American Political Tradition, actually goes back far before the Declaration and the Constitution to look at America's colonial experience. And he looks at documents, uh, not just the, uh, you know, Mayflower Compact, which of course is very famous, but also the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, which was the, you know, initial charter of government for the colony of Connecticut. And Kendall's able to show that, in fact, the basic tradition, the basic symbol of America, uh, going back to the colonial period, was this idea of a people under God. They had to recognize themselves as being under God. They had to recognize and really, you know, have a, um, a, a, a reality of virtue as a people. So it's a virtuous people under God who then come to, together to deliberate, knowing that they're under God, to think about the kinds of institutions and the kinds of laws they need in order to govern themselves. So that, I think, is the way in which Kendall brings together a, you know, sort of deeply Christian view of uh, how you form a polity with uh, the practices that America's had all along. Now, of course, you know, we're talking about Puritans and we're talking about uh, dissenting Protestants back in those, uh, you know, sort of uh, colonial days of the United States. But there's nothing that rules out, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, you can also have a Catholic understanding where, you know, you're, you're going to listen to the church authorities and you're going to listen to, you know, the magisterium and its understanding of God. But the church, of course, is never out there, you know, trying to create governments. The church is not, you know, trying to uh, charter and, uh, you know, directly, uh, you know, provide model constitutions for states. That's never been what the church does. What the church does is, in fact, provide the ethical teachings that overall allow, you know, statesmen and citizens to then create uh, their polities. So I think Kendall's model actually works very well for Catholics, for Orthodox Christians, and you know, perhaps even for other uh, other religions as well, uh, just as it works for the Protestant experience in American history. Dan, one uh, maybe not easy question, but one last question for you. You mentioned John Locke 
And there's obviously criticisms of Locke, especially from the integralist camp. And that rests on a certain assumptions about what John Locke is standing for, sort of the, the traditional idea that he's sort of a classical liberal defender of individual natural rights and limited government against the tyranny of the majority. But Kendall actually has a slightly different reading of Locke. And I feel like that could be helpful if you could expound on that as we we end our show here today. Yeah, you know, the idea that America was founded on classical liberalism and that America is all about uh, an expression of the philosophy of John Locke is really an idea that only started to take shape during, you know, sort of the 1920s and 1930s, which is around the time that Wilmore Kendall was in graduate school. And uh, Kendall was actually one of the first people to recognize that a lot of what we hear about John Locke is, in fact, a myth. So when Kendall went and studied the actual text of the Second Treatise and of other works by John Locke, he discovered that, in fact, Locke is a lot less of a defender of natural rights in practice than he is, you know, a majoritarian in practice. And so that's why Kendall writes his thesis on John Locke and the doctrine of majority rule. So it was a very brilliant thesis that, in fact, showed that there was a side to John Locke who was being totally overlooked by a lot of interpreters in the early part of the 20th century. Well, at the time, Kendall actually liked the idea that John Locke was a majority rule Democrat. But then partly uh, thanks to his reading of Leo Strauss, uh, in particular, Natural Right and History, the book that Strauss publishes in 1953, Wilmore Kendall came to reevaluate his understanding of John Locke. And he came to say, well, not only is John Locke's commitment to rights rather dubious, but in fact, John Locke's commitment to a, uh, you know, uh, some sort of deity is also extremely dubious. And uh, so he came increasingly to see John Locke as someone who, just as Leo Strauss saw Locke as being, you know, perhaps a nihilist at heart, someone who believes that, well, the social contract is the thing that creates all values, and that uh, this talk of rights is, in fact, a kind of window dressing, and the talk of the idea that God gives those rights may also be window dressing. Kendall came to believe that Leo Strauss was basically correct about this, and that John Locke was a very different kind of thinker if you read him very carefully then he, his reputation would lead you to believe. And so this is one reason why Kendall, you know, starts to question and doubt the idea that America is really founded upon purely Lockean grounds, and instead says, wait a minute, let's look back to the colonial experience. And in fact, one of the very interesting things, people often talk about the influence that John Locke has on America. They don't talk nearly as much about the influence that America has on John Locke. So the Mayflower Compact is many decades before John Locke's second treatise. You already have the idea of a compact, the idea of contractual government that is long before John Locke. And um, John Locke himself says in the second treatise, in the beginning, all the world was America. So when Locke thinks about, you know, what the state of nature is, America is one of the examples he has in mind. Kendall thinks that the uh, question of the original contract, the social compact, is one of the fundamental divides between left and right in our country. And Kendall says there are basically two ways of looking at this. The conservative way says that you already have a contract between humanity and God. And the purpose of a you know political contract, a social contract, is to then specify for a particular group of people how you're going to follow the laws that you've already been given by God, how you're going to you know behave virtuously in the context of particular political decisions about you know organizing your country. So what the social contract correctly does, what the you know constitution of the United States correctly does, is simply to specify you know some of the particulars, some of the details of a law that has already been given to us. Whereas the other view of the social contract, and the one that Kendall sees as being representative of liberalism and of progressivism, 
says that basically uh, human beings just create all of this for themselves, that the social contract really is, in effect, the origin of all, not just of our laws, but also of our values. And, you know, and this, this is certainly where uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau winds up leading to with his uh, work on the social contract. And Kendall was, in fact, a brilliant uh, reader of Rousseau. He translated two of Rousseau's most important books, uh, The Social Contract, but also a book called The Constitution of Poland. So Kendall was someone who, you know, really understood very minutely what the implications are of these two different understandings of social contract, one of which is a very specifying contract of a higher law that is already in place, the other of which is a contract ex nihilo, which is very radical indeed. Well, thank you so much again, Dan, for coming on the podcast uh, again. If our listeners want to find more of your work, where can they, where can they find you? Well, certainly they should go to modernagejournal.com, which is uh, the publication I edit for ISI. They can also find my work at uh, spectator.us. I have a monthly column in the the print edition of uh, the U.S. edition of the Spectator magazine. And finally, of course, if they want uh, Wilmore Kendall and the Conservative Affirmation, the uh, new edition is available from Regnery Books right now. So I encourage them to pick it up. Great. And we'll uh, link to that in in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Dan. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the intercollegiate review, select modern age articles, ISI books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we'll see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.